you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we are going to finish reading this chapter and walking through it this morning. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds. And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would continue to help us understand your word, that your spirit would illumine our minds, that we would continue to see your son, the one who is your eternally begotten, that we would see him as he is, as he's revealed in Scripture, that we would see him as the incarnate Lord, our mediator, our Messiah, our Savior. Father, we recognize that he is, he is beyond, and you are beyond all 
comprehension that we will never ultimately know you as you know yourself. But Father, you have revealed yourself in your works most clearly You, our triune Lord, has been revealed in the works of Your Son being given, becoming incarnate, living among us, dying for our sins, raising from the dead and ascending to Your right hand and in the sending of Your Spirit to give us life, to unite us to Him through faith, to empower us for the spreading of this gospel message across the earth, to comfort and strengthen us in our need to grow us in sanctification, making us more and more like your Son so that you might be exalted. It is here that we see and know you most clearly and we pray that you would help us to understand what your Word is saying about your Son. What David, by the Spirit, was singing about your son a thousand years before he ever was incarnate. Singing about him, what was true of him, what was given to him before the foundation of the world. We pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what he's saying to the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember when I was a high school teacher, and and some of you have probably heard this story before, but when I was a high school teacher in the 90s, I taught at South High School, and I was um, teaching there, and I was involved in the Bible club at the time. I was a member of a church. My wife and I went Sunday morning. We went um, to a small group on Wednesday nights. We were involved in serving in the ministry. We, We were nice, if you will, conservative Christian folks. Um, and I remember being involved in the Bible club at the, at the high school and wanting to serve the high school students who were there and wanting them to know I was a Christian and a teacher and, and I was there to be of help to them. And, um, I remember one of the students, 16 year old student came to me during that time and was asking me questions about some struggles he was having with regard to understanding who the Lord is because he had heard some teachings at a at a church somewhere and, and was kind of rattled by them. And he came to me and said, hey, I was, I was taught this and this and this. What do you think? And when I heard what he was being taught, uh, I told him, yeah, I don't think that's right. And he said, well, why not? And I said, it just doesn't sound right to me. And he said, can you show me in the Bible? And I said, no. No, I can't. And I remember I said, I don't, I don't actually know my Bible that well. And... Uh, and I remember the student looked at me. I was 24, 25 at the time. The student looked at me and he said, if, if you're going to hold yourself up as a Christian teacher on our campus, don't you think you ought to know more about your faith? And I remember looking at him and thinking, um, yes. And so I told him, yes, I should. You're absolutely right. And I looked at him and I said, do you have any idea where I can learn more? <laughs> and he said, what about your church? I said, well, so far that hasn't been helpful, but I, um, I went to church that Sunday and, and um, some 
guys were taking a group of people to a Bible conference. I was reading the bulletin and going, i got to learn more. What's the chance to learn more? So then the bulletin it had, there's a Bible conference coming up. And one of the leaders actually taking um, the students down to, the, to that um, conference was actually Randy Prine, who ended up becoming one of our elders here. Um, Sovereign Grace was for some time. But Randy Prine and the pastor of now Living Grace Church, Brian Murphy, were going to this conference. And um, I saw their names. I said, oh, I know who those guys are. I'll go ask them. And so I went over to them and said, hey, I, know you, I saw you're going to this Bible conference. I don't know what it is. I don't even know how to pronounce it. It sounds like a disease. It was called Ligonier, right? <laughs> I don't know what it was. It just sounded like some kind of disease you get. And so I said, I'd like to go to this conference with you in L.A. Can I go? And they said, sure, you can come to the conference. And so I went down to the conference with them. And uh, there were, it was held at, at um, the church of a man named John MacArthur. And, um, and the, it wasn't his conference, but it was a conference being held there. And he was one of the speakers and so John MacArthur was speaking, and R.C. Sproul was speaking, this guy, and then Sinclair Ferguson, another guy was speaking, and a guy named Jerry Bridges was speaking, and I didn't know who any of these guys were. I, did, I was shocked that this many people came to a Bible conference for several days, and there was a bookstore filled with all variety of books to read. This was all shocking to me. Um, there were seminaries set up there advertising, and I didn't even know what a seminary was. I actually went up to one and said, what's a seminary? They said, well, it's a place where men come to get trained in pastoral ministry. I said, if, if, what if I don't want to be a pastor? Can I still come to one? Because I need to learn the Bible. And they said, yeah, you can. I said, okay, good. So I need to talk to you. And that, that began this whole journey that led me where I am now. But I remember being in there listening to these men preach. And they were preaching about the love of God. And during that time, they started talking about the love of the Father for the Son, and the love of the Son for the Father, and the Father giving to the Son this gift of a kingdom, of a church, of a people, and the Son being sent to come and redeem that gift, and make good on it. And I remember sitting there listening to this, thinking to myself, I have never heard this before in my life. I mean, don't get me wrong, I was, I was a Christian, it might not even seem new to you, but it, it deeply impacted me because it was the first time I ever heard a story that was so much bigger than me. See, I knew I was a sinner and Jesus came to save me and give me forgiveness of sins, but, and, then, and then God was going to help me if I paid general attention to this as I heard it on Sundays or in small groups. I, I was going to generally live a decent life that was, made God basically happy with me, and that was my whole understanding of Christianity, really. And I realized for the first time that this story was beyond anything I had ever considered. That there was this eternal thing going on between the members of the Trinity. I hadn't even considered how the Trinity was involved in salvation in any way, shape, or form. I just sat there stunned by all of this. I wondered what any of it meant. I didn't know a lot of the words they were using and discussing. Words like dispensationalism and covenantalism. If you don't know what they are, that's fine. But I remember them being thrown out, and I was, what in the world is that? I actually remember looking at Randy Prine in the van and saying, what's a dispensationalist and what's a covenantalist? And he said, well, we're this and not that. And I said, okay, well, then that's what I am. And that's just how I went on. I didn't even think about it beyond that. This was all new to me, and it was, it was kind of wrecking me. Because suddenly the Christian story was so much bigger than just my individual concerns. The primary focus 
in my mind, was on getting forgiveness of sins so that when I die, I can go to heaven. But the rest of it is just about my life here and now. How am I a better husband, a better school teacher, a better church member, a better citizen of my country, a a, a better father? But when I understood that the gospel that I see played out in history is the outworking of an eternal promise between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit born out of their love for one another, I was stunned. Further, when I began to get a glimpse of the fact that I was privileged to be a member of the bride of Christ, the love gift of the Father to the Son, my heart was set on fire. I remember leaving there wanting to do nothing more than study the Bible and teach it to others. Now, mind you, I had no idea that had anything to do with pastoral ministry. It was years later that 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 came across me because I didn't know that pastors were generally dedicated to studying the Bible and teaching to others. I thought they did a whole lot of other things. After that, I just went out wanting to do one thing, proclaim the name above all names. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to make him known. I wanted to know him and make him known. And this morning, I'm, I'm privileged to continue doing just that. What began that day in me when I understood that hasn't stopped. It hasn't slowed down. That fire hasn't been put out. It just grows. It just grows. The more I understand God's word, the more that grows. And this morning, as we continue to consider what it is that God is doing in, this, in salvation history that we are privileged to participate in. I want us to understand that the last several weeks we've been looking at Old Testament evidence being given for the claim that Jesus has inherited the name that is greater than angels, the name that is above all names. And today we're concluding this chapter by looking at the last Old Testament evidence that's given in this section. Continue to meditate on these claims that are made about who Jesus is and then this Old Testament evidence that's marshaled to demonstrate to us that he is who he is. Now I want to look at three, generally have three points this morning. One is the son's inheritance. As we look at this text, the son's inheritance. The second is the son's victory. And the third is the son's co-heirs. So that's what we're going to look at. The son's inheritance, the son's victory, and the son's co-heirs. So let's look first at the son's inheritance as we meditate on him in this text. Look at verse 13. And to which of the angels, chapter 1, verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said? Now who's speaking and, and why is the question being asked to which of the angels? Which reminds us of last, the last several weeks. Look back at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? So we have the Father, God, speaking to the Son. Speaking to the Son, not to the angels. Now he does say things of the angels. Look at verse 7. Of the angels, he says. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says. And so here's our contrast. Jesus has inherited the name that is above all names. He's inherited that name. It's been bestowed upon him at his resurrection and ascension. 
Now it was bestowed upon him at his incarnation. It was bestowed upon him at his baptism. It was bestowed upon him at the transfiguration. It was his in eternity past. But as the incarnate Christ, the mediator, it's bestowed upon him here. And he is called the Son. Now he's always eternally been the Son. But as the incarnate Son, he's being declared to us to be the Son. He's ascending as the incarnate Son, if you will, or mediator, to the right hand of the Father. And the Father is speaking to him. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Verse 13. Now look what he says. The Father is speaking to him. Not saying this about angels. He never said this about angels. What he said, he's only said to the Son. Now look what he says. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This statement that he's only ever made to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, I want to take in a couple of parts, but here I want to look at it as the Son's inheritance. Now, this is coming from Psalm 110, arguably the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. But look at Psalm 110 with me. Jason read through that this morning. Psalm 110. Turn there. Keep your hand in Hebrews 1 and turn over to Psalm 110. If you're not sure where the Psalms are, it's almost the middle of your Bible. I mean, if you go right in the middle, you're going to hit the prophets. But just before the prophets are the Psalms. And there's Psalm 110. Now, I want you to notice what's said. Again, that superscription you have next to Psalm 110 that says, A Psalm of David, that is part of the original text of the psalm. So the psalm is telling us who sang this, who wrote this song to be sung. David. Who's David? Well, we know King David, the one with whom God covenanted that he would have a son who would sit on his throne forever. King David wrote this song. Now listen to the song, because here it gets quoted. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now the authors who, I'm sorry, the translators who translated what David has said here as the author, translators put, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool in quotation marks, which I think is helpful because it's what they're wanting you to know is the Lord said this to who? My Lord. Now, who are we looking at? What I, what I want you to understand is David is singing this psalm, but as he's singing it, he's singing it prophetically. He's singing this psalm prophetically. And David is singing to the Son. That's my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. That's the Son. He's singing to the Son in the person or the character of the Father. That is the Lord. The Lord, the Father, says to my Lord, the Son. David is singing to the Son in the person or character of the Father. We're told the Father is singing to the Son. The Lord, in Hebrew is that word, um, that in Hebrew is, is Yahweh. Which would be read by a Jewish reader as Adonai. They never pronounced the word Yahweh, so when they would read it, they would say Adonai. And the phrase in Hebrew would say, Adonai, if I was reading it out loud to an audience, Adonai says to my Adonai. The Lord 
says to my Lord. The LXX translates this. The LXX is the Septuagint, sorry. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, a couple hundred years before Christ, translates this. The Lord is kurios in the Greek, which means Lord. Says to my Lord, again in the Greek, kurios. The Lord says to my Lord. So who is the Father singing to? That David can call that person Lord. Who is King David calling my Lord? The Lord says to my Lord. Well, keep your hand in Psalm 110 and Hebrews 1 and look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus has just interacted with um, the the Pharisees with regard to what the greatest commandment is. He's just interacted with the Sadducees with regard to the resurrection of the dead. While the Pharisees are there after asking him about the great commandment, etc., Jesus turns, and this happens if you look at verse 41 of Matthew 22. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together... Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for? What do you think about him? Whose son is he? Notice that question. Whose son is the Messiah? They said to him, The son of David. The Messiah is the son of David. Now, are they correct? Yes, I mean, the Messiah is the son of David. We're told in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, and various other passages, that David's son will be the Christ, the one who sits on the throne forever and ever. In fact, Matthew's so certain of that, he starts this book with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. And so they answer that way. And then Jesus asks them a question about whether they're exactly right. In other words, do you understand the whole picture? You're right. He knew they would say the son of David, incidentally. They should say the son of David. But he's saying there's more that he is that you're missing. So look what he goes on to say, verse 43. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit... Now notice he just made a comment about... Psalm 110, which he's going to quote from, that David is speaking by the Spirit. In other words, Jesus just told you Psalm 110 is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That David, when he spoke, was speaking or writing, if you will, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. That this is the Word of God. David, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, here's the question. No king, no older man, and certainly no king is ever going to look at his son, who's the younger man, and not the king, and then address him as Kyrios, Lord, Adonai in the Hebrew. That's never going to happen. So Jesus is asking a question. If the Messiah is merely the son of David, 
then how is it that David addresses him as Lord? How does David address him that way? And when David addresses him that way, David's addressing him as Lord by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one inspiring him to call him Lord. How can he do that? Their response, verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It's like, let's just move on. <laughs> so it's a very good question that he had in reply. Let's stop asking him questions. In Psalm 110.1, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, that's the Father saying to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit knew this and he inspired David. Therefore, David knew this. That this Messiah to come was much greater than just the offspring of David or the son of David, that he himself is the Lord. That he's the son of God, not just the son of David. Whose son is he? He's the son of God. So he pushes on that. Now, what is the occasion the father's referring to when the father says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, Upon what occasion is he referring to when he tells the son to sit at my right hand? Well, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 and verse 29 answers that question for us. As, and you can look there with me if, if you want to follow it more closely. But right after Peter has quoted as he's preaching the sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he is quoted from Psalm 16 and says it applies It applies to Jesus and not to David. He goes on to say in verse 29, Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb was with us to this day. So, So David could not be the man in Psalm 16 who lives forever. In other words, who's living the resurrected life. Because he died, he was buried, his tomb is with us to this day. He is, he is actually decomposing, if you will. Being therefore a prophet, David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, You hear David in Psalm 16, as a prophet, by the Holy Spirit, knowing the promise God had made to him that his son would sit on the throne forever, David foresaw that the Christ would be resurrected. David knew that. You're being told that authoritatively by an apostle. Did David trust in the crucified and resurrected Messiah? Yes, he did. How do I know that? Peter says it's so. Then he goes on, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the promise, or the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Look at verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, uh, but he himself says, David didn't ascend to heavens, 
he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, David prophetically foresaw and sang about what the father said to his son at his resurrection and ascension. But here's what you need to understand. David is not just prophetically telling us what the father said to the son at the resurrection. That's not all he's doing. He's telling us what the father promised the son before the foundation of the world. The father is speaking to the son before time and making him a promise about his inheritance as the incarnate mediator, the Christ. He's speaking to the eternally begotten son who took on humanity, the incarnate mediator, the Christ, and he's making him a promise. He's making him an oath. He's making him a covenant. That must be the case. Because David, by the Spirit, heard the Father saying this to the Son a thousand years before Christ was incarnate. Further, he's speaking in the past tense about the future. The Lord said... In the Septuagint, that's in the aorist tense. It's a past tense. It's happened. The Lord said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make it your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Father made another promise to the Son as well. In Psalm 110, if you look down in Psalm 110, if you follow it down, the Lord sends forth from Zion, verse 2, your mighty scepter sends that forth from Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now look what he says in verse 4. The Lord has sworn. Hear that? Here comes an oath. The Lord doesn't just say to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What does he say? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He is the Lord who does not change. He will not change his mind. The Lord has sworn. He's made an oath. He's made a covenant. And what is it to the Son? Here's what he's saying to the son. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and he does not change. The father made an oath to his son. You are the eternal priest king. And these two themes, Jesus as priest and Jesus as king, are carried through the whole book of Hebrews. Those themes... Jesus as priest and king are so predominant in the book of Hebrews that one might rightly ask whether Hebrews is a sermon, and we all believe it's a sermon, but whether it's a sermon on Psalm 110. Now, I said the Father made an eternal promise to the Son. What does he promise him? What does he promise him? Look again at Hebrews 1.13. And to which of the angels... And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? There's a two-part promise here, if you will. It's really two parts to one whole promise. What is it? That you're going to receive a kingdom. You're going to sit at my right hand because you're going to have a kingdom. You're going to rule and reign. It's being promised a kingdom. And notice until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, that you're going to defeat all your enemies. You're going to have victory over all of your enemies. You're going to receive a kingdom, 
And that kingdom is going to be victorious over all your enemies. The Father has the Son sit at his right hand. In other words, the Son will rule and reign with him. The Father promised him this kingdom before the foundation of the world. The Son tells us, for example, in Luke 22, that the Father has covenanted to me. We translate it in our, I think, English Standard Version, assigned to me. But the word in the Greek can be translated covenanted to me, a kingdom. And I'm covenanting to you. The Father promised him this kingdom before the foundation of the world. The eternally begotten Son, as the incarnate Christ, would have all authority in heaven and earth. That's what he declares, isn't it? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He promised him that he would sit on the throne and all his enemies would be defeated. He would rule a kingdom, one in which all his enemies are put under his feet. Now, I want you to think about that language in the progress, um, if you will, of the unfolding redemptive story. If I take you back, for example, to Genesis 3.15. Man has fallen into sin. God is cursing him. And God makes a promise as he curses the serpent that is the, if you will, the first gospel promise made to us. I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's you is there as the serpent, Satan. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. Your head will be put under his feet. The son will have the victory. As the incarnate mediator, he was promised this victorious kingdom before the foundation of the world in eternity past. And the promise is made good in the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. That's the son's inheritance. What does he inherit? Inherit A kingdom. He inherits a kingdom. The father promises him this kingdom, an eternal kingdom, which he rules as the incarnate, crucified, and resurrected Christ, and in which he is completely victorious over all his enemies. But that's way bigger than you merely getting forgiveness of sins and going on about living a decent life here and now. It's a gospel story is first and foremost about the father, out of his love for the son, giving him a kingdom. You will condescend a man, take on human flesh, walk among them as one under the law. You will keep the law. You will pay the penalty for their violation of the law at the cross. You will resurrect from the dead. You will ascend to my right hand and you will rule and reign forever. And you will be victorious over all your enemies. Which is leading to my second point. The son's inheritance, this kingdom, and the second one is the son's victory. The son's victory. Look at that last part of verse 13. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, just, just really briefly, until doesn't mean the state of affairs changes after. As we hear the word until and we think, we, we almost automatically think, well, he's going to be sitting at his right hand until, and then once, the, once that comes, the enemies are put on his feet, then he's going to stop sitting at his right hand. Nope. He's going to continue to sit at his right hand. He's just saying that 
there's this time which you're ruling and reigning and, and eventually all your enemies will put on your feet fully and finally. Now, I don't know if we've stopped to consider this, but did you guys know that Jesus has enemies? Do you ever think about that? Jesus has enemies. Jesus is hated, and Jesus is a hater. How, how does that sit on you? How does that, what do you think? Don't be a hater. Right, you guys heard that? But Jesus is a hater. If you have enemies, you're a hater. They say, doesn't Jesus love his enemies? Yes. Does he hate them? Yes. How do you work it out? He's Jesus. <laughs> There's more to it than that, but I don't have time to get into all of it. Here, here's the point. Jesus has enemies. I know that sounds like an obvious statement, but I don't think it's something we consider enough. Jesus has enemies. Who are they? John, John Brown, a commentator, said this. By the enemies of Jesus Christ, we are to understand whoever and whatever opposes the great purposes of his wise and benign government. Satan and all his legions, obstinately unbelieving and unrepentant men, all institutions, civil or, ecclesi- or ecclesiastical, in other words, churchly, which are inconsistent with and opposed to that reign of truth and purity and order and happiness, which it is his purpose to establish. So here's the good news. Jesus will, has conquered and will finally and fully conquer all his enemies. But, but let me name some of his enemies. For these enemies are also our enemies. Here's, here's an enemy of Christ. One, sin. Jesus is opposed to sin. Now sin is external to him. Temptation was external to Jesus. He was tempted from outside of himself, never from inside of himself, because he, he, though born in the likeness of sinful flesh, he was not himself sinful. He didn't have a sinful bent or inclination. Sin was external to him. He was not a sinner. He did not sin. Sin is our enemy as well. But sin is our enemy both because it's an external enemy and because it's an internal enemy. Sin exists in our very members. Yes, you are tempted by the world and the devil. Those are external to you, external temptations. But you are also tempted by your own fallen heart as well. You know every time you're tempted to sin, you shouldn't be going to the conclusion Man, Satan's tempting me. The world, that woman's tempting. Whatever it is, right? That's Adam's line. Okay? Who's tempting you? Maybe Satan. Maybe the world. Maybe you. Maybe you. Second enemy of Christ, not only sin, but the law. The law is an enemy of Jesus. You say, what? How can the law be an enemy of Christ? So now I want to be really careful here. Because isn't it Christ's law? Doesn't he uphold it and fulfill it? Yes. What do I mean by the law is an enemy of Christ? The law is an enemy of Christ Christ as to its curse. You hear what I'm saying there? The law is our enemy as well. Not as it is in itself. Not absolutely. The law in and of itself 
is holy and righteous and good. But as we are sinners and law-breaking, uh, lawbreakers, the law is bringing a curse upon us. The law is our enemy as it curses us as lawbreakers. It is not our enemy in and of itself. And as redeemed Christians, it is no longer our enemy. In fact, the law is our gracious guide. The law was the enemy of Jesus as he bore the curse of the law in our place at the cross. A third enemy, the world. As to its sinful system, in other words, I mean that stuff outside of us, sin outside of us, the world system. Jesus is not the enemy of the world, if you mean, if, if you mean by that the natural created world. Jesus created this world. He's not its enemy. When I say the world here that Christ is its enemy, I mean this world system, what it believes and values and teaches. Jesus is its enemy. And so are we. We know this as we see the world system compete for our affections, for our minds. Another enemy, all rulers and governments opposed to him and his people. All rulers and governments opposed to him and his people are his enemy. Jesus and his people are both opposed to, listen, to all secular, and I don't mean secular in, in the way that, in the, in the good sense of secular, but I mean secular in the way it's used today. All secular rulers and governments who are opposed to him and his people. He's their enemies. That's easy to see with nations that persecute Christians, isn't it? You get a nation that closes itself off and says Christians may not be here and it persecutes any Christians there. Easy to see. What about America? I'm treading on kind of ground here that might get me in trouble. But I'm going to tread on it anyway. I love America, so please don't say think I'm anti-patriotic or anything or any such thing. But is America the friend of Christ or the enemy of Christ in the ultimate sense? America is Jesus' enemy, inasmuch as America does not bow the knee to Jesus. We slaughter babies and endorse sexual perversion as a matter of law. That's just getting started on the most obvious sins out there. We mock his rule. We tell Jesus and his word that it's not welcome in our public square. Now, we may be better than most human kingdoms, but we are not a godly kingdom. We are not Christ's kingdom. Inasmuch as that's true, Jesus is opposed to our nation. Hear that? What about Satan? Satan's an enemy of Christ. Satan is the enemy of Jesus and is our enemy. He is the liar, the father of lies, the tempter. He is the enemy of Christ and therefore our enemy. And then, then another one I'm going to give you is death. Death is the final enemy. Death is the consequence of our sin and our law-breaking. Death is what comes from listening to the voice of Satan, the world, and the flesh, rather than to the voice of the Lord. 
Death is an enemy of Christ. Death is our enemy. Death is the enemy that Christ, that Christ put to death in his cross and resurrection. Death is coming for us all. You guys know that, right? Unless you live until Christ returns, death is coming for you. And it's our enemy. We don't rejoice in death. We mourn. Even though for a Christian, dying is gain, because being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, it's still true that death is our enemy. Dying is gain. You know what, what's even more gain for the Christian? The return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the not having to die part. Right? Even more gain. I once heard Javern McGee years ago say that, that you know, he, he hoped the Lord Jesus would return in his lifetime so that he would not have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Though he knows the Lord is with him there, he'd prefer not to have to walk through it. Look, we weren't created to die. We await the resurrection when death will be no more. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 25. There's a lot here about the gospel and the resurrection. I'm not going to get into all of it, but let's just look at verse 25. Speaking of the Christ. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed, verse 26, is death. Is death. Now drop down to verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, you have to become resurrected and imperishable, if you will, to inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a, that's a euphemism for death. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal, mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. That's where I'm referencing the fact that the law is in that sense your enemy. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is conquered in the resurrection. Christ conquered it as the first fruits of the resurrection in an inaugural sense, and in a consummative sense, he'll conquer it finally and fully when he returns and we're all resurrected. Now what leads to death? Our enemy's sin leads to death. And what a power is sin to kill us? The law. The sting of death is sin, but Christ took that sting upon himself at the cross. The sting of sin is the law, but Christ took the curse of the law upon himself. 
And in the resurrection, Christ was the first fruits of our resurrection. Thus, when he returns and he's put all his enemies under his feet, we can say without any exceptions, death has no more sting. Death has no more victory. Jesus has the victory. And we will with him. So the world and the flesh and the devil and all people, governments and systems aligned with them are the enemies of Christ. But what will he do to his enemies? He will crush them under his feet. And he will establish his kingdom as an eternal and holy kingdom in a new heavens and new earth. That's why he has the name above all names, the name above angels, because he is the king of kings and lord of lords whose enemies will all be put underneath his feet. I wonder if you're catching yet why this is good news for us. Way bigger than us, but good news for us. Which leads me to my last point, which is just going to come pretty quick. The son's co-heirs. As I said, the son's inheritance, the son's victory, and the son's co-heirs. Look at Hebrews 1.14. Hebrews 1.14. We're going to come back to the implications of this in more detail next week. But look here. Verse 14. Are they not all, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits? In other words, they're ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The angels are sent out to serve, to minister. They're not the king, they're servants. But they're sent out to serve. Uh, this, this word is the same word from which we get, um, uh, you know, apostle in one sense. Not, they're not apostles, but where we get this kind of apostolic ministry of being sent, from which we, which we later get the word missions, or the mission. You know, the angels are on mission. What's the mission the angels were sent for? To minister to those who are to inherit salvation. By the way, um, while the church's ministry to those who inherit salvation is different than the, the angels' ministry to those who inherit salvation... We, like them, are sent to serve those who inherit salvation. Differently in that we're proclaiming this gospel message. They're not preachers in that sense. I'm not saying they never herald anything. But we're the ones sent out in that way. But they're also sent. They're sent to serve God's elect throughout the whole earth. And notice what God's people are called here. Those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, Christ is the heir, but so are we. We're co-heirs with Christ. Paul says that directly in Romans 8, 17. What is his is ours. Now that's magnificent grace. We deserve judgment and damnation for our sin and our lawlessness. But it was our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. You hear that? It was the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. The kingdom Christ inherits, he shares with us. You are being counted as sons, as heirs. That's why it'll say in Hebrews 2 that Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. 
He's not ashamed to call them as brothers. It's not just the forgiveness of sins you received, though that's glorious. That's good. Never want to discount the forgiveness of sins. It's not even just the crediting of Christ's righteousness you received, though that is glorious and good. It is that you receive the adoption as sons in Christ, and thus his reward is your reward. His inheritance is your inheritance. You inherit a kingdom with no sin, no suffering, no sorrow, no Satan, and no death. The kingdom is yours in Christ. What what did you do to earn that? You're just a creature. How is it that the Father, when he gives a love gift to the Son, finds it his good pleasure to share that gift with you? You don't fully experience it now. But it will fully be yours. It will fully be yours. And so we're to meditate on such a great salvation. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us to do. Meditate on this great salvation. To do so, I want to conclude just with reading 1 Peter 1. And, and you don't have to turn there. I just want to conclude with reading that and then give it a hearty amen starting in verse 3. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not Now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful 
for this glorious inheritance we have in your Son. We're thankful first and foremost that He is the heir of the kingdom. That He is victorious at the cross and resurrection and that He will be finally and fully victorious at His soon coming return. That the last enemy, death, will be put under His feet. That Satan will be put under our feet as well. That we will be co-heirs with Christ. We are thankful that your Spirit prophesied this by the prophets in the Old Testament. This salvation we now know in Christ. We're thankful that it was proclaimed to us by preachers whom the Holy Spirit sent to the church as your word was proclaimed. And we're thankful that we know that you, Father, have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in the Beloved, and that you are keeping our inheritance for us, that it will be ours on that great day. May we more and more, more and more think of that great day, of the kingdom of Christ, and less and less be caught up with this kingdom. May you be exalted in it, in Jesus' name, amen.